The thing about Sherlock Holmes that I think has been pretty consistent, he's always been a dick. He's like the smartest <laughs> guy in the room, and he will let you know he's the smartest guy in the room. And Watson always serves as a buffer from the dickishness that is Sherlock Holmes. And at the same time, he's really frustrated having to be this buffer, because it's just like, <laughs> Jesus, I have to put up with this guy. Welcome to Quarantine Comics, where we take the comics you should be reading way too seriously. Elementary, my dear Roman. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And for the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to get our detective on. Oh, God help us all. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are talking about Watson and Holmes, 2013's urban reimagining of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's famous Sherlock Holmes, Dr. John Watson, as contemporary black men in Harlem. Oh, well, it sounds like Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Nope. Well, nothing says contemporary black man more than Robert Downey Jr., because we all saw Tropic Thunder. <laughs> nope, not that one either. Try a different ethnicity, my friend. Lucy Liu and Johnny Lee Miller. Wow, can I just jump in now? <laughs> <laughs> in this book, they're black. I just want to say you made me say all of that, Robin in the script. <laughs> So look, this series was created by writer Carl Ballers with art by Rick Leonardi and crowdfunded initially on Kickstarter. Book one titled A Study in Black features the eponymous Dr. Watson, an Afghanistan war vet, a former medic now working as a surgeon in an inner city clinic. And of course, Holmes is a peculiarly, peculiarly, peculiar, peculiar observant consulting detective to New York's finest. As you can imagine, fate brings this unlikely duo together to team up, bump egos and bust some heads in a labyrinth of drugs, guns, gangs and conspiracy beyond some interesting takes on tech race and modern crime it's worth noting that the series decided to put dr watson at the forefront with holmes as a strong supporting character whatever remains must be the truth <laughs> so i don't know what that means Roman. you made me say that that's in the script i don't know what that means I'm just, okay, let's... <laughs> so that's literally a Sherlock Holmes thing. Oh my God. Philistines. Oh my God. The series was critically acclaimed for its unique take on a classic, and it was nominated for multiple awards, including the Eisner and the Glyph, but it wasn't until its second book where the characters were handed over to a bevy of creators like Brandon Easton, Lindsay Fay, and Stephen Grant. Issue number six actually won an Eisner for a single issue focused on the issue of sex trafficking. So this week, we're actually going to talk about both books, volumes one and two. And joining us is a new friend of the pod, Chris walker <laughs> welcome to the pod buddy hey what's up man i was like i do have a last name but <laughs> you don't need a last name you're like bono man so chris you're actually becoming more and more infamous every day and you've actually had a career in comics and marketing but it says here uh in the notes that you're black yes. last time i checked at the family <laughs> reunion i think i think that's how we rolled all right pre-covid so pre <laughs> it could change up after covid <laughs> In all seriousness, I would love to hear a little bit more about who you are in the context of comics, your work, but also the kinds of books and creators that you've been into and that have kind of kept you in the game. Yeah. So again, my name's Chris Walker. I was a colorist, formerly a colorist. Mm -hmm. I colored for Marvel and DC. So I colored Thundercats at Wildstorm with Ed McGinnis, which was probably one of my favorite runs of comics. I did a bunch of fun stuff over at Wildstorm. We actually did a Thundercats Superman crossover with Ali Garza. That was a lot of fun. I knew a lot of the Wildstorm guys actually created the Ninja Boy logo back in the day. Colored a lot at Marvel. Worked with J.J. Kirby on X-Men uh, Evolution to end out the run. And then did a little bit of DC stuff. I was supposed to color Batman Superman with Ed McGinnis there, but I was working on some stuff at Dreamway Comics back in the day with Pat Lee and our, I was working on Arcanium. So a lot of colors also did some did some art tours did my studio was working on the 
Ghostface Killer graphic novel, Cell Block Z, had the pleasure of working with Rob Haynes. Rob Haynes did the breakdowns and the layouts, and so I did finishes and inks. So to get really particular, that means that he kind of like broke down the story based on the script and did like sketches, and then I filled in everything from there. So that was really fun. I brought like this really kind of skateboard-esque art style to it. And then from there, I did like graphic design in the hip hop industry. So I uh, worked with Guru, uh, Rest in Power for Jasmine Task 3. Uh, again, working with JJ Kirby. We did Diddy's logo for uh, Diddy Runs the City back when he ran the New York Marathon. I worked on some things with D12, with Scam, who Eminem mentions on his album, but Scam's also a credible comic book artist uh, himself and did a bunch of colors with him and then some of my own artwork I was working with violator records a little bit as well as like fader magazine i had an art crew back in the day i was rob Stoll, karen grant we were called armada we did a bunch of stuff for fader magazine and the 1200 squad mixtape so been around it been doing a lot of bringing culture urban culture hip-hop culture into comics and using comics as a way to express that when did you start doing that? Because you started out doing superhero comics. When did you start to bring urban culture into comics? And when did you kind of recognize that opportunity? Uh, I think we did it right away, right? Like I was doing that before I broke in. So I broke into comics with Rob and Caron. Caron Grant had been doing a lot of really cool stuff with Image. And we connected at a convention. He liked my colors. We kind of connected over this kind of anime style, but also bringing graffiti elements into it. And so he hit me up one day and he was like, yo, man, like I'm about to do this Fantastic Four Mangaverse comic. Can you color it? But before that, we were actually as our collective pitching to hip hop albums, record labels, any of that sort of stuff as a collective to do work together. So for me, I've always seen comics as a way to either express what's happening in culture or society or just in the moment. So for me, being like a black kid growing up listening to hip hop, it was just a way that I could express, you know, my enthusiasm for the music and for the culture. Who else has brought that sensibility to comics? Jason Pearson Body Bags. If you go back Jason Pearson body bags, his storytelling, his art style, but then bringing in culture, the way that he mixed it up. I think he was one of the people that was most influential. When you break into comics back in the day, I don't know if they say it anymore. We used to say it was like your class that you break into, kind of like your high school class. And so the class I came in, we were all like hip hop heads. So it was Scotty Young, Sanford Green, Karen Grant. LaShawn Thomas. I'm trying to think who else was doing it. Jason Pearson had already kind of pushed through uh, Kari Randolph. So we were all people who were very excited. The Mad Twins. We were all excited about fusing comic books and not even Marvel DC, right? Just sequential art and bringing in kind of this graffiti-esque style, having people in the books represent the culture. I'll never forget seeing Rob Lee or in like that Spike Lee commercial that he did for Levi. And I think that was one of the moments where I was like, oh man, you can have culture in comics. You know, he would do that a lot, right? Like the posters in the background could actually be something that was a poster that you were into that was on your wall. That was before big brands made you do right clearances for everything when it used to just be cool. Yeah, I hear you, Ramon. (laughs) When it used to just be cool to do stuff. I'm trying to think who else was doing it. He did that. And then honestly, the Voltron Sprite campaign, where it was the rappers and they were like piloting the the lions. I was like, oh, you can do that? 
And so that was, that was kind of it for me. Nice. When you say graffiti-esque, what does that mean? How does that manifest like aesthetically? So that's like character design style. So if you go back and you look at like, there are two animation directors called the Mad Brothers. They do a lot of stuff for Cartoon Network. Scotty Young, back before he has like the new style that he's drawing in. If you look at Phil Barossa, a uh, character designer for a lot of Justice League stuff. It's just this way of interpreting forms and shapes. A lot of it came from Bon uh, Vaudet. Uh, he was an early, early cartoonist that the graffiti writers got really into. So it's just a way of like approaching shapes and styles and forms. So that's one way. A lot of graffiti has this stuff that, that's called wow style. So if you look at tags or in graffiti, it's tags, bombs, pieces, just those flares, right? Those arrows, those lines that come out, the way that colors will drip. There are ways that we are really making the work hyper stylistic. And you would either rev it super up or you would pull it down. But if you're into it and you could look at a book and be like, oh, you're a graffiti dude or you're into hip hop, you know, so it's a wink nod. Damien Scott, he drew Batgirl and he drew Robin. Man, all these guys have like gone on and done so much like really cool work. It was just like a class of people. Damien Scott actually was doing that in comics and he moved to Japan and just became an artist and was just oh. doing like all this wild artwork in Japan after blowing up in comics. So it was this era. It was like the aughts, right? Early 2000s going into 2010. And it was just a group of people who were like, we want to bring this in the comics. Well, you know, I feel like in that era, right, as we're exiting the early image era of the 90s, we went away from hyper-realism and kind of, I don't know, male fetishization of men and women into style. Even outside of graffiti culture, Humberto Ramos, right? Oh, he was crazy. Like, when you go back and look at the stuff he was doing at Wildstorm and Cliffhanger, yeah. Yeah. It, it'll huh. just, like, blow your mind. But yeah, it's interesting, right, how that comes and goes. I have a lot of opinions about when things get in the hyper-realism and why, but, and I like it, right? Like, I like both. I don't think things always have to, you know, I think the the companies for a little while, and I've seen them move away from it, the big two, but there's a moment where the books had to feel like the movies, right? Like, from the coloring, from the way that they would frame the shots, right? Like, all this stuff had to feel very cinematic, and that's really, if you think about the Ultimates, that's where the Ultimates uh, yeah. really got a lot of their By energy. Mark Millar and Brian Hitch. We've yeah. talked about Brian Hitch quite a bit. Yeah, But it's great, right? Because without the Ultimates, would there be the MCU, to be very right. honest? I don't yeah. know what there would be. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, we're not here to talk about superheroes. <laughs> the game is afoot. So let's start wow. talking about some Watson and Holmes. Ryan, I got to ask, what'd you think? I always like these reimaginings of Sherlock Holmes and putting him in contemporary Harlem is something I never thought would work. And I kind of loved seeing them operate in this environment. Rumna always says, okay, and here's a part where Ryan shits on the comic book of the week. And I feel <laughs> I always end up doing it because I always, sorry about and that. Just so but, you know, um, like my phone is on to all my homies who worked on that book and they're hearing you right now, Ryan. Fantastic. <laughs> So here's my fundamental problem that I have with this interpretation of Sherlock Holmes. There are kind of two. And, I, and the first one was that I didn't think any of the cases that he worked on were particularly interesting. Like, I always kind of feel like when Sherlock Holmes comes in, it's a weird-ass case, and no one 
can solve it. And I kept kind of looking for that, these cases that were just like, what the fuck is going on? And I never quite got that. They almost felt sort of mundane, like there was some girl had a stalker issue. And you kind of keep thinking, like, I haven't read a lot of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes. I think I've literally only read one short story. It was, I think it was called, oh yeah, The Adventure of the Speckled Band. And the twist was that the victim had been killed with a venomous snake. So there's always this weirdness that happens in the Sherlock Holmes stories. And I kind of felt that was lacking here. I kind of wanted the cases that Sherlock Holmes works to be weirder and more distinct. That was one of my big issues with this interpretation. I'm going to, Chris, why don't you go next since you actually know the people who created it? Yeah. And I know Brandon Easton and Stephen Harris the most. I haven't met the creator. I didn't even really work with Rick Leonardi, just a nerd heart thing. He's one of my favorite, favorite artists of all times. And I got to color some trading cards. So it was a real treat to see him working on this. And then I was a big Spider-Man 2099. So take that nerd heart away. I, I agree with you. I really like the take. I thought it was super interesting. I think one of the things that really stood out is this kind of understanding of Harlem, right? Like I felt like it was a love letter to Harlem. It was a character uh, in the book itself. Mm. Right. And so I know part of your podcast is really uh, thinking about things from like constructive criticism, right? So for you, Ryan, like, I don't think you're the bad guy. You're just saying like objectively, here are some things that worked or here are some things that didn't, in my opinion. And I thought that's a fascinating take that you have with that. And I, and I felt I think you put words to a thing that I was feeling, right? Because I felt like there's this tension of, like you're saying, it could it be more or could it be less, right? Could it be more? Could it be weird? Could it be these things that only he's able to solve? Or could it be less? And could it just be this guy who's just really into cases, right? And I think that's one of the mm. things that you work on a lot as a writer. I didn't tell you guys this either, but like I write too, and I was in the writer's guild. So, you know... One of the things you push a lot as a writer is the middle isn't always as interesting if, if you can push some more tension. And so I believe his name is Carl, right? Is Carl Bowler, I think is the yeah, yeah, creator. Yeah, he's a writer, writer-creator. Uh, yeah, I, I love the world that he created. I love the dynamic between the two characters. I like how he started to pull that together. I do agree Sherlock is such a fantastical character and even Brandon started to pick this up, right? Like the deduction where it was almost like a superpower, but to your mm -hmm. point, Ryan, it's like a superpower for kind of mundane things. I actually really liked the issue with the singer and the, the producer. Yeah. The, the final issue. Yeah. Where it was just like a regular story. Right. And it was just them living in Harlem. They also bring in a lot of the Arthur Conan Doyle characters like Irene Adler and Moriarty, basically Sherlock's girlfriend and nemesis. And so it starts to really feel more like Sherlock Holmes there because you start seeing some of the familiar pieces that we all attribute to Sherlock Holmes reimagined. Leslie Stroud, not Lestroud. Oh, good catch. Right. And I think that's interesting too, Ryan, to say that, right? Could it be just completely Sherlock Holmes reimagined or is it more of a take on our world? with some Sherlock spread in, right? What would it be like if you were a smart guy who wanted to defend your neighborhood versus a hard reimagining of Sherlock home 
in Harlem. And I think they did a good job. But to your point, there may be either some decisions that could have been made or, as you know, uh, Ramon, coming from brands, it's like some hard decisions where you have some enemies, right? Like a brand, you have people who love a brand, you have people who hate a brand. And I'm sure they made those decisions, but as outside people in, you see a different one. It's a tough needle to thread, but the one thing I was feeling that I wanted more of, to Ryan's point, was and I have this fascination with Sherlock Holmes. I stand way too hard for the BBC Benedict Cumberbatch show. I think it's one of the best shows of the past decade. And the thing it does well, it's a modern reimagining. And there's been too many fucking modern reimaginings. There's a network TV one in the United States right now. That's pretty terrible with Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu. But Sherlock's got to be the most eccentric character. He's a fucking weirdo. And with this book, maybe it's because Watson, we were talking before we started recording, Watson, yes, is the everyman. He is the guy whose perspective, who's writing his memoirs about his time with Sherlock. But in this book, he's the primary character. He's the one you were empathizing with about his love life. And I think that was the error. To me, I love an awesome, badass Watson. Don't get me wrong. I don't want a bumbling sidekick. But I need Sherlock to be weirder. You know, Ryan, you talk about the weird cases. The, the issue that won at the Eisner was a modern weird case, sex trafficking, this thing going on, modern day slavery in our world that is true, this strange evil that sits just underneath our society, right? Right. And I don't even want to call it weirdness. It was the strange but true. Everything else was kind of a by the books, play by yeah. play. I needed more eccentricity, I think. And that's why I agree with both of you. The first series, the first four, he could have been Sherlock without being Sherlock Holmes, not in a bad way, but you could have pulled back some of the peculiarities and eccentricities. But that said, right, the idea of John coming back and him being an army guy and this guy wanting to save his neighborhood and he just happens to be Sherlock Holmes and he just happens to be Watson, right? That was an interesting way to basically do a new procedural, right? That was an interesting take on a burn notice type genre setup, right? And so what you guys are saying, for it to be truly Sherlock Holmes, like that issue six really pushes it there. And one of the things I was thinking when I was reading it is, would you consider Sherlock Holmes in modern day, would he be on the spectrum, right? Would he have autism or... Well, he is. I encourage both of you guys, every listener, go watch the BBC's Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch. He is. He's a man with problems and by the end of i think they did three seasons each episode's like an hour and a half mini movie by the end of it you're like this guy's fucked up he has problems well i mean even more than having problems right and this is one place i think carl could have stepped in is does he really even relate with other human beings right exactly exactly because i never know what he wants right other than he's obsessed right he's got to solve this thing in this book i actually don't want to shit too much on it because the book one and issue six, the one, the one, the Eisner book one does a lot of amazing world building. Leonardi's art, hundred percent. I loved Spider-Man 2099 when it, when it initially came out, I bought probably like 30 issues of it straight and I've gone back and reread it and it holds up. But book one is world building. The art is beautiful. They paint the scenery of Harlem so well, mm-hmm. but Sherlock, to your point earlier, He's always had the superpowers of deduction, but he's too good at everything. I I don't see any character flaws, and that's what I was missing. I needed, like, the the one character flaw that I loved was 
Watson's failing marriage and his relationship with his ex and therefore kind of the withholding of his son. To me, character flaw that I've got to be careful how I say this, but felt true to the African-American male experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt as a non-black man, you brought me in with Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I'm getting a little tease for this part of the world that I don't actually understand. Right. Well, the thing about Sherlock Holmes that I think has been pretty consistent, except for some of the more genteel adaptations of the character, he's always been a dick. He's like the smartest guy in the room, and he will let you know he's the smartest guy in the room. And whether he's on the spectrum or not, doesn't matter. He's just kind of a dick. And Watson always is a guy who kind of eases you into it. Because you're seeing it through his perspective, you're a little bit more accepting of it. And Watson always serves as sort of the buffer from the dickishness Mm -hmm. that is Sherlock Holmes. And at the same time, he's really frustrated having to be this buffer for this guy. (laughs) Because it's just like, Jesus, I have to put up with this guy. And I, I do feel that was something that was missing it was the the intellectual dickishness of sherlock holmes actually the best parts were when sherlock holmes was looking at a woman's shoes and he realizes oh you're a biker all that stuff feels very sherlocky to me but i was missing the back and forth between watson who's just like god i gotta follow you again what are you doing why are you like this you know and sherlock who's like his mind is like 10 steps ahead and you know uh, at times they almost felt like equals which i don't think they should be One thing I loved, as I was flipping through trying to find some of those dickish moments, the one thing this book did so well, and it's one of those, this is why I'm in love with comic books, is the last page, in book one, I don't remember book two as well, because I had to read it on tablet, but in book one, the last page of every issue is just like, no words, full page, action shot, cliffhanger. And I just, I felt my like heart pumping and blood racing, because the pacing you know, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of snippy dialogue, a lot of cool observations. But that last page in every issue is you looking at them shooting down in the basement, them walking away with the sun setting behind them, just everything felt more dramatic, almost in the last page of every issue. And I enjoyed that. And I'll say as a creator, and this is with anything, right? You see it with sitcoms, you see it with series, you know, with us being marketers, you see it with a brand when a brand first comes out, like Red Bull was initially for what truck drivers <laughs> was like the target audience. It takes a while to find your voice and your path. So again, Carl did a really great job figuring out what he wanted his Sherlock Holmes and Watson's Harlem world and experience to be. One of the things, and this goes to what you guys were saying about the two of them being equals, it didn't bother me. But again, it's like, and I've been watching Cursed a lot, the new series on Netflix, which is not Arthurian fantasy, but it doesn't completely hold to it. And I'm okay with that if you want to play with things a little bit. But one of the things I notice is they're two lost souls. And I think in that way, they are equal. And I think if they do more, to me, that could be the heart of this book, right? Is there two lost souls? They're people who are helping one another find their way. John is trying to figure out who he is. And maybe Sherlock is really just trying to figure out what he's about, right? Why is he so obsessed with this? And I and I noticed they were planting seeds there with the brother and that sort of stuff and maybe the backstory. Mycroft, you know? yeah. Yeah, that was actually my favorite dynamic reading it. The two Holmes brothers I thought was really fascinating. One of the things that I think they'll have to make decisions about in the future 
is how Machiavellian is this Holmes. And I think all these things come into place because it's now and it's grounded, right? Basically, Holmes back in the day is fantasy, right? So I don't hold it to the same rules mentally. But if this guy is in Harlem doing these things, then I have to ask myself, what type of person is he? And I think a lot about what Marvel has done with Professor X, which I don't really love, but I still think it's an interesting take. And they've done the same things to Reed Richards, which is like, these guys are really smart. And you saw it in Endgame with Tony, and they've decided what the world should be like. And not that Carl has to do this, but I think it would be interesting to see is Sherlock Holmes in this adaptation, is he manipulating Watson? And Watson just doesn't realize it. I, I, some of the things you were saying there, Chris, oh my God, you guys need to watch the BBC version. <laughs> like it's, it's I've, I've seen it. Yeah. And I mean, Holmes is manipulating Watson. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Holmes and his brother, Mycroft, it, the relationships flesh out what, Look, if they didn't walk away from the world they created to hand it over to other creators, we wouldn't have gotten issue six, which right. was great. But the other thing I left me wanting more. It's like I'm in love when a writer and an artist say we're in this. We're in this for three years, five years, et cetera. That's why I love some of the Vertigo stuff, certain select stuff at Image, even, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man with Bendis and uh, before Stuart Emmon and uh, Mark Bagley. Like, I want to see two people pair and go the distance and take and I, I trust you. I'm in your hands. I'm giving you my money. And I could have used a book two and a book three by Ballers and mm-hmm. Leonardi. And maybe there will be a book three. And again, great things happened because they handed the reins to other people, but it felt like too soon. I needed to see more I on have- this journey with them. I think we are going to get more, right? Because I, I, I really like what they were starting to set up with Irene Adlero, I think they called her, and Moriarty. In fact, the take on Moriarty was really interesting. Setting the it up evil as a corporation. Normal, <laughs> yeah, an evil corporation that's sort of like, but also one that has kind of dominated the culture of Harlem. In a way, you can almost see them setting up this battle for the soul of Harlem. We're at the very beginning of that, but you know, for instance, everyone wants the Moriarty shoes. Everyone's kind of obsessed with Moriarty's musical brands. And so you can kind of see that influence sort of creeping in. And I'm kind of curious to see how that actually manifests because you're going to have Sherlock Holmes. Typically, Moriarty is just a professor. He's just a dude. So it's one guy against one guy. But now it's one guy against an entire corporation. Now it's one guy against the man. You know what's interesting with this book, too? because it it did come out in 2013 and once you you did well first of all pdas and some of the other technology they reference it's so interesting what a decade does and not even a full decade (laughs) right so that that's not a knock on the creative team that's just the reality but i really feel like whoever made the luke cage series on netflix probably has both of these volumes of this book on their bookshelf i'm glad you i'm glad you said that because they felt so close like harlem as a character the only other thing that does it as well as book one is luke cage season one mm-hmm. i mean it, it really feels like they read that and they're like oh, okay th- this is how you do this right this is how you bring this to life and like you're saying make harlem a character and No, even there's a quietness to John that I feel is a quietness to Luke Cage in the cinematic version. So, you know, even if they weren't inspired by it, I I think it probably says something about archetypes when it comes to black men and developing those characters. Right. It's a different take 
on a very strong black male character. Well, I want to ask you, Chris, I have to ask this question because I'm not a black male and I don't inhabit the universe of black men and women. And yes, it's by black creators, but does this do it well? Do do black young men read this book and say, oh, yeah, this makes sense? Or I don't know if it's a book for black young men. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, I, it definitely feels black a nerds, older. old, old black nerds like you. I, I, I think it's it, that's one thing I was I was struggling with. Right. Like, is who is the audience for this book? Right. And not to say that the book wasn't well done, but thinking about the direct market and how it works. Right. Like, who is the target audience that's reading this book? I think it does it well. I think Watson probably is the best fleshed out character of that whole book and probably the heart of the book, which is what they are going for. But he he really seems like somebody that's real and that I would like. I think they did a good job of taking the military veteran tropes and turning it into something, I won't say new and fresh, but like very relatable. And it felt very grounded, right? Like he wasn't a guy who regretted his time over. He had PTSD. They kind of delved into that. Also, I think some other people who looked at this uh, is the Punisher and the supporting black character in the Punisher. Do you remember him? Especially in season one, season two. So I think Carl really is like hitting something. Um, let me let me let me ask a question another way. All right. So Watson absolutely is a well fleshed out black male character. Mm. Other than the cool hair and wearing a hoodie underneath the jacket, is this version of Holmes a realistic black character? I don't know, because what we've been talking about with Sherlock, he's kind of a weird dude. So, you know, <laughs> I don't I, know. I picture the casting is Andre 3000 for this. <laughs> now, now, if you said that, but, you know, there's art weird and there's smart weird, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I struggled with Holmes a lot through this book. But I have to say, I was thinking about this before we talked, like, I don't know how big of a Sherlock Holmes fan I am, especially after reading this book, right? So if you think about it, you have to take on certain tropes to write Sherlock Holmes, and an audience has to like those tropes in order to really enjoy Sherlock Holmes. And I, I don't know if I necessarily like that. You know, there's a book in writing called Save the Cat, where you make the lead character um, likable because they do something heroic or something altruistic at the beginning. And not to say that, that Holmes doesn't, but I don't know if I ever really like him. You know, and why, from what you guys is... are saying, I don't know if I'd ever really like Holmes in any of the other depictions of Holmes. You wouldn't. You shouldn't. Why is likability important, though? For a character? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between being interested in the character and, and like liking him, I've always felt. And yeah, so... it, it's a shortcut to relatability and to get you to empathize, right? Like... I don't really like Michael Scott, but to your point, I really enjoy him. Yeah. So the office is great, right? But it's like there's a push that has to happen with Holmes, right? So if I felt that Holmes was manipulating Watson, then there's a hook for me to get in, right? Then I would want to know why. I would want to know, can Watson figure this out? Is Watson comfortable, right? And I think you guys are kind of hitting at this. The relationship kind of comes together pretty easy. And it's not that there's not tension, but I I just need some more motivation, right? Like, I really want to know why you stick with this guy. Why are you putting yourself in harm's way? And I'm sure he has that because they put those hints in, but I think they could have hit it. I won't say hit it harder, but maybe just said it or maybe done a couple more scenes 
where it's like maybe even that scene where it was him talking to his son. That might have been a moment where he could have said something like, you know, I found a new mission or I really like saving people, you know, with the hospital. But I also am doing some things in the community to help the community and save people even outside of there. Right. I just need a little something more. Yeah, I totally get that because in the initial volume, I was sort of wondering, why is Watson following Holmes around? I mean, Watson's got a job. He's busy. He's a busy man. He's, yeah. got a, he's working at a hospital. So where does he have time to moonlight as a detective? There needs to be something compelling that drives him to Holmes, some need that is met and that brings them together and almost forces them together. I love how he started calling him doctor right away. I thought that was super cool. It, it, so when you talk about like, is it black or black cues? Like I think being African-American, that level of instant respect I thought was really cool. You know, coming from the community, it's like, I don't care if you're not a doctor yet. I'm going to start calling you a doctor now because I believe in you. Right. And I think yeah. we're all coming from communities of color. And I think when you're black, when people especially like dismiss you or marginalize you, that was like a little, those are the little things I check for. Right. So it's like, yeah, of course Holmes does. Right. And, and again, it was very clear Holmes knew who Watson was before the beginning of it. And they kind of shied away from that going on. But when you really read those first couple of issues, he clearly picked this guy for this mission to go do this stuff. And I think when the bad guys had Watson in the scopes, that was when you got the feeling he was like, oh, maybe I messed up and I shouldn't have purposely drugged this person into it. Well, one thing that does eventually show up in other uh, renditions, and again, with more time with these creators, you would see that is Holmes's weakness is his love of Watson. He falls in love with him. To your point, it's a brotherly love. He finds Watson and brings him into his fold because he almost needs him, like Batman needs a Robin to be better. Yeah. And it it does that moment with the sniper when Holmes could crack the bigger conspiracy case, but chooses not to, right? Because uh -huh. his brother is is in. I mean, they've got Holmes and. They need to flesh that out more, that love between the two, that reliance between the two. And again, it, it could be done. It just, you, you set everything up and then you just handed it over to other creators to just show these two inhabiting a world versus the characters being developed versus the two characters executing in the world. And that's what I mean. It takes time and it's choices, right? Is it a procedural? Is it a drama? Is it a character study of two black men who are getting to know one another and dealing with the world. And maybe over time we would find out more, but I think those decisions over time will either be made organically or maybe they'll just make them. And I'm fine with any of those choices, right? I think, again, Carl did a great job of setting up something that's interesting, but I think in whatever he starts doing next, kind of making some of those decisions and tightening those screws because I could also watch it just as like a burn notice show that has like a larger thread where Holmes basically is trying to solve whatever larger thing that he hasn't told everybody about. And Moriarty knows this and they're actually going to come to a head in, you know, five volumes. I'm OK with that. I'm also OK with it being this thing where this guy is kind of this nerdy guy in Harlem who didn't find his footing 
and he makes an association with this ex-military guy and he's like hey i need some muscle because i'm trying to do this stuff and no one's listening to me and i think you're the dude who will like i'm okay with any of that sort of stuff because he's done a good job setting it up but again i think some decisions for the next volumes hook me in even more is this going to continue because it came out a while ago is this ongoing? Do you either of you guys know? I don't know. I think Carl's working for Valiant now. I hope it does. I think they've got something great on their hands. Here's what I would say. I believe in independent comics. I do Say think- that again. Say it proud. I think you got to go cut your teeth at the big boys and prove that you can work at the big company, the big newspaper like Ryan, the big comic companies like Chris, the big brands like me. And then you got to go cut your teeth somewhere else. And they kickstarted this thing. That's great. You know, I've met venture capitalists who say, I pay attention to companies who Kickstarter first, but I think this book needs a home and I don't think it has one. I think it needs almost like VC backing another, call it independent imprint, be it Image, Valiant, Dark Horse, or something else new that doesn't exist today to pick this book up. And honestly, the creators need to know that they can pay the rent. I I really want to see Baller and Leonardi go do this for 24 issues straight. You know, because there's something here. And Sherlock Holmes is a property that anyone can, it's, it's literally, uh, it's open. Anyone can touch it, which, which is why you see so many movies, so many interpretations of it. More can be done. Enough threads were planted. Moriarty is the man, not a man. But to Ryan's point, while we've been talking, I've been trying to look up more about this. When we were prepping to do this, Chris, after you recommended this book, it was so hard to find anything about it other than the critical right. acclaim for book one and issue six. And that's a damn shame. And that's what I was saying before about audience, right? Because I'd love for it to keep going and find that audience, right? As you're saying, marketers who cut their teeth on the big boys, right? Who is that audience? And then how do you get someone who has, I've been thinking about a lot, how do you get someone who hasn't grown up with comic books all their life to read something like this, right? And then what are the things that they need to feel comfortable for entertainment being this way? And then the third thing is, is this book and this isn't a knock, is it even a great comic book or is it just a great story? And it's something that should just exist. And maybe comics isn't even the best medium for it, but it's the medium that gets it out now. Right. But that the beauty of comics, I've had multiple screenwriter buddies of mine saying, Oh, I got this great treatment. I wish someone would pick it up. And I'm like, find an artist, make it a comic book. It's cheaper flesh out the idea for 50 issues, you know, <laughs> like seriously, because then it's a real thing that exists in the world and can build a following, can become a cult classic. And it's a better likelihood of getting picked up than just being a script. And here's what I would say. It, Ryan, this reminds me of some of your argument against House of X, Powers of X from a few weeks ago. There's a lot of really great world building, but I'm left wanting more. And that's a good thing, you know. I'm left wanting more. Volume one is all world building with a couple of quirky things. The only weird adventure is a sex trafficking, very special issue that won an Eisner. So it literally has all the all the badging and the appeal. It just no one's running with it. Well, I think I think the pieces are there. I don't think they figured out what to do with the pieces entirely yet. Uh, They've got Harlem as a character. What would you do with it, Ryan? You know, they need to figure out what the story is. They've done a bunch of different stories. Like the first volume, Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of different things happening. There's the infants. There's the story of this guy who got beaten up. There's the accountant who was killed. Three different stories. Do they come together? Not really. I kind of felt that they were just feeling around. Okay, so what... What's working, what's not. And then even the second, it was a little bit more contained. Each episode, each issue was like a specific story. 
the sex trafficking, the woman who's being stalked, the, the mad scientist woman. And you can kind of see them experimenting again. I think they need to actually just figure out what the story is. To have Holmes work on one case over the course of a long period of time, yeah. emphasize the relationship between Watson and Holmes. Why is yeah. Watson hanging out with Holmes? What does Holmes yeah. want with Watson? Bring out more of well, Holmes's I'll... character. He is a force of nature, right? I said he was yeah. a dick. He is a dick, but he's also kind of like a charming dick. So right. bring <laughs> that out more, right? He, he, so And then all of this within the backdrop of Harlem. So they need to actually sit down and figure out like, Okay, I'm going to tell the story for like just four issues. It's going to be one story, beginning, middle, end, one story, one mystery, one really weird mystery that only Holmes can solve in Harlem. To me, this is why the BBC version works so well. It's an hour and a half, not a 30 minute, 20 minute, 45 minute, a solid hour and a half, one adventure. So it's almost like 45 ish or 45 pages or 60 pages of one solid thing. And what they were doing is like 22 page issues of like one shots and ah, that left me, I felt uh, like I was I, left at the altar. I would add to you guys, and this is like the brand strategist in me. It's like, they got to figure out the the book that they want to be. Right. And you always have business constraints, right? It's like, well, we don't know if we can make 300 pages of a story to get told. Maybe we can only do 22 pages. And if that's true, then what does that 22 pages do? What does that feel like? You're not going to be able to do character stuff, right? In the same way, right? Like it's going to be get in and get out. It's going to be a lot of those things. So I think we're all saying it's like as they go into the next phase, like really trying to figure that out. And to your point, if they do want to be, you know, let's say the BBC of comics and telling this more kind of drilled down character story, maybe that's what they say in the next Kickstarter, right? Like we did volume one, it was like this, we did volume two, but as we're going into this, we really know where this book is going. We really know what this series, you know, is going to be. We want to do this. I think it's just when you're pitching a TV show, and this is where I say, I, I hate trying to make comic books, TV shows and TV shows, comic books, and not in the sense that they can't port over to another media, but comic books are comic books. And I think you have to respect the medium, you know? Yeah. But there's some things that you can learn from development process in TV. You just really know what your show is going to be. We talk about this a lot, Ramon, in marketing, right? What role does the brand play in that person's life, right? Who are you talking to? What role does Watson and Holmes play in the target audience's life? And what do you want to give them? And to your point, Ryan, and then don't waver on that, no matter what, no matter how cool of a cat in a tree story you want to do or whatever, unless it's Naruto and anime filler where you're just giving character moments, right? Like I wouldn't mind if there's a character beat moment comic, but if you think about uh, Luther, I'm a big Luther fan from BBC, you know, there are character moments in Luther, but there's no filler moments in Luther. It is a ride every single moment, every single minute on screen. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily need to like slow down and have Holmes talk about his childhood or anything like that. But I think there was actually one episode where I noticed like Holmes was giving these asides, these kind of snarky asides. I'm like, oh, there he is. And I feel like you could slip those character moments in just based on how they react to certain cases. They see a corpse. How does Watson react to it? How does Holmes react to it? And just a line of dialogue could kind of, the best comics, they say it's like poetry, right? You say a lot in a very little compacted space. 
So I, I think there is definitely opportunity to kind of slip those moments in, even if we're just kind of roaring along with the narrative. Yeah. So we've only got a few minutes left. And I feel like we've litigated the hell out of this. I think because we all see the potential in this and we, we like parts of it. Last question on the book for both of you guys. What was your favorite moment? Was there a favorite moment or a favorite thing that this book did for you? I like that you got to see Holmes as human between him and his brother. And if that's not the take on Holmes that they'll do over time, I'm fine with that. But I did like the fact that you got to see him not be perfect, or if he is a perfect person, that he's perfect in one way and then has a lot of flaws in a lot of other areas, if they do want to take it that way. And I really enjoyed John being this paramilitary guy who is figuring out his civilian life. I thought that was probably one of the freshest takes both on Watson and the paramilitary guy, right? Like I've seen both of those, but to have those combined here, it felt fresh in a way that I haven't seen both of those things feel fresh in a long time. I've mentioned this earlier. I really like what they were doing with Moriarty. It's just the idea of Moriarty being this corporation is something that's really interesting <laughs> to me. And also really gives you the sense that Holmes is going to be out of its depth when he goes up against Moriarty because it's really hard to go up against a corporation. And then this wasn't, I, I really like what they were kind of doing with the Baker Street Irregulars, the, the kids that he cultivates to, to kind oh, of- Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of opportunity there, both from a narrative perspective, like these guys can kind of give him like hints and clues, but also just from showing the community, showing the world. It, it's both a world building and a narrative element that could really be emphasized in future issues. Yeah. And I'll say I, I really did enjoy it, right? I think even my own work, right? Like I'll look at pages and I'm like, crap, I could have colored that better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but as Ramon has told me <laughs> the first time, he was like, dude, that cover was crap. It was too computerized. I was like, I colored that. He's like, I don't care. It sucked. <laughs> I was like, hey, well, man, but you, 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 you got to ship the pages. You got to get the pages out. I'm like, at least I know how you feel. But I'll say they've put together a world and a character and an interpretation that is immensely enjoyable. And I think having conversations like this, and I'm sure like with them talking to fans as they keep developing it, I, I really think it could be a really, really not just strong series, but I say strong series in the sense that it could be one of those things that people really talk about in comic books for like the next 10 years. Yeah, but what I want it to be is not for 10 years we're talking about those amazing six issues and then they disappeared. I think I need something more. And I kind of like that, Roman. Honestly, it kind of creates this sort of mystique, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, hey man, if you want to be a legend, you gotta die young. <laughs> Jesus, look at John Lennon, right? <laughs> the other needle that this threaded for me that I just loved, like I can't stand the Guy Ritchie version of Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. It's too kinetic, like too kinetic. And the BBC series threads the needle of slow, witty action. But when it's action, it's earned action. And that's what I think this did well. It wasn't action packed, but when it was action, it was kind of a build up to the moment. And and this is where the medium of comics, frankly, beats TV, in my opinion. Ryan, we've talked about it like when the panels guide you and make you feel the tempo, like that's hard to do. And it does it well in moments. So yeah, I'm, I'm literally like I'm setting Google alerts for knowing when this thing comes back. So 
Yeah. I mean, if you guys want, I do know some of the guys on the book. So if you ever want, and also uh, shout outs to Stephen Harris. Like I've been a big fan of his for a long time. I don't know if you ever read Aztec. What is it? The Amazing Man. Oh yeah, by DC. He wrote Aztec, the Ultimate Man. Man. Oh no shit. Oh, he drew it. That's Stephen. Oh okay. Yeah, we were in a studio together for a little, and I remember meeting him, and I gushed because I was like one of my favorite books from DC, and he's such a great dude, and he's so humble. He's like, dude, you don't have to do that. You know, Chris, much respect to you for giving all these shout outs to, but the only person we give shout outs to on this show is Auntie Pinky. Auntie Pinky? That's another episode in itself, my friend. Uh, Shout outs to Auntie Pinky. I'll tell you, Chris, so this is my aunt, and she's been listening to this. No, I'm glad that we can do something that she's enjoying. Even if, like, one person listens to this, it's sort of like, hey, you know, you're getting something out of it. Dude, full (laughs) stop, what I love about this show is, and again, this is like the nature of Ryan and my relationship when we met in the industry and found out we both like comics. And we don't like the same comics, right? We grew up on the same stuff, but went in different directions. Grabbing a beer, grabbing a banh mi, grabbing a coffee, and talking comics with friends. That gives me pleasure. This is I, I do several podcasts, and this is the one I love to do more than the rest because I don't know. There's no pretension. It's <laughs> like it's we're just talking about comic books. So cool, Ryan. My my favorite question to ask you all the time: What are we reading next week? Well, next week it's going to be Neil Gaiman Sandman, and I should have had an intro queued up, Roman, but I do not. But maybe it doesn't really matter. Because, like, I mean, it's Sandman. It's, like, this multi-volume epic. It's in the zeitgeist. Netflix, or is it HBO? They're doing a series finally off of it. No, I got you. So, I, I got this. It's it's the wire of comic books, and here's why. It, for me, personally, it's the thing everyone's been yelling at me that I need to read, and I just haven't been able to read it. So I'm the one comic fan in the world. There's 100 volumes, bro. I, and I've not read it. And I feel I'm ashamed, but I've been lazy. And for quarantine comics, I'm going to read Sandman. We'll be out of quarantine by the time you get through those. <laughs> Do you know something about a vaccine that I don't? Well, Chris, have you have you read Sandman? I have not. I've read issues. I have not read all of Sandman. Ah, so there you go. Sandman coming up next. And this is the part where I do a standard outro read about... I would say be the first person to email us, but we have multiple people emailing us about this show that are not Wait, related do we really? to Ryan. Wait, Dude, do we-, we got another fan. He discovered us on the Google. Oh, no shit. Wow. And it was because of the Hawkeye episode. No kidding. Okay, fucking A. I'm telling you, man. Quarantine Comics, taking it to the next level. Two listeners. We got Chris gave enough shout outs now. I think enough comic creators are going to listen to hear shit on their books. So don't <laughs> hate us, please. <laughs> Submit your book. We're two know-nothings. We'll just shit all over it. I will fight and defend your book from the wrath that is Ryan. Seriously, shoot us an email. QTDcomics at gmail.com. Chris, this has been a lot of fun. I have loved nerding out with you on this book. It's good, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for reading that, and thanks for supporting those creators. Yeah, man. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. 